Yeah. Schedule says 9.45, so I better go because I've got a ton of material to cover for y'all. And I'll try not to bore you uh, too bad, but that might happen. And uh, actually, I'm going to stand over. Oh, never mind. Here, I'll leave it here. I'll leave it here. I can move it for you. you want to use that one? Yeah, I think I'm going to just stand right here. I'll stand over here to the side. Thank you, Tiago. Appreciate it. Okay, let me pray and we'll get started. Lord, I thank you for today. I pray for the classes going on today and just the uh, uh, apologetic tenor uh, that's going on here this weekend. May we all be encouraged in the most holy faith. May that be the most important motive uh, for me and the rest of us today that uh, the saints are encouraged in the truths of Scripture and that uh, seekers will uh, seek your face uh, as well today. May you be pleased in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, New Testament history and background. I think the title initially said the reliability of the whole, uh, New Testament, but Nell Brace is doing a very similar title, uh, the reliability of New Testament documents, which is an issue of textual criticism. I'm doing something totally different. So, I renamed it to How Do We Know Our Bible is True?, uh, but the email didn't come through in time to get printed on your uh, uh, schedule. So how do we know our Bible is true? What I really want to deal with is uh, this. The New Testament is God's own disclosure of the key events concerning the earthly life and ministry of Jesus Christ, including His cross work and fulfillment of the prophets, the life of the church in between the two comings of Christ, and information concerning the second advent. God, uh, Winford Cordwan, and no doubt about it, has said God revealed himself and performed his saving work in real history. So the question I want to ask and show, demonstrate is this, in what areas does the New Testament square with history? And uh, so, in other words, uh, my point here is when you're out discussing the Bible with people that are skeptical and, uh, or whatever their hang-up is, They'll always come at you, as Dr. Little said yesterday or the night before, uh, often they'll mention uh, contradictions in the Bible or they'll say, don't you know the Bible has been proven to be not true? And uh, when I hear that anymore, I think to myself, this person's a freshman in college or they went to secular university or they just really have no clue what they're talking about. And they just want you to not preach to them because they see what's coming. And so they, they throw these smoke screens up, is what I call them, smoke screens, so that you won't continue to talk to them. But the New Testament does actually square with real world history. And in the areas of uh, the intertestamental period, I'll deal with that brief, briefly. I have a ton of material here. I've cut the slides. I had like 240 slides. I've cut it down four or five times. I'm still at... I don't know, 140, but I probably won't get through them. I'm sorry, 129, it says. So I'm, I'm going to fly through the material. Uh, I'm trying to do too much in this presentation, but I want to give you the information to just let you know what types of things are out there. So the intertestamental period lets us know, the, uh, the secular world history that was going on lets us know what's about to happen in the first century. The Herods, Herod the Great, and all the Herods mentioned in the Gospels, and then uh, Judaism, the religious life, the everyday life, and everything of first century Israel and the Roman Empire, the connection 
uh, of the Roman Empire. So in the intertestamental period, what does that big fancy word mean? It means the 400 years be- between Malachi and Matthew. Okay, 400 years of world history between the time that God quit speaking through the Old Testament prophets and the time when John the Baptist came on the scene preaching and Jesus is born, right? Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 2, your uh, nativity or Christmas stories. You had the Roman road system. All roads led to Rome, literally. Uh, Universal language, urban civilization, the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, and Daniel's prophecy. Over in Galatians, I will read one quick verse just so you'll say, man, uh, preacher Mel got up there and spoke and didn't even preach out of the Bible. Galatians 4, 4, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. The fullness of time. That's a loaded phrase. It deals with all of this. The fullness of time was because of all of these issues going on. God sent Christ to the earth, to this world, at just the right time when there was a road system through by which the gospel, gospel could be carried to the civilized world. There was a universal language so that everybody could understand the gospel. It was the Greek language. Why did he use that? I don't know, except maybe one reason was because uh, the Greek language was suited for uh, discourse. It was suited for explanation and argumentation. Urban civilization, Jerusalem, Alexander down in Egypt, Rome, uh, Alexandria, uh, Rome, uh, there were bi- uh, Antioch. There were big areas of uh, civilized uh, areas that you know the gospel could be spread in the pe- general peace of Rome and uh, the prophecies. Uh, so Herod the Great, what about it? Well, you come to. I really love this. Uh, actually, uh, I really love uh, the Christmas story, Matthew's version. He starts out this way. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east came, saying, Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? Another absolutely loaded phrase. Magi from the east bring this entourage, and there isn't just three wise men. They have a large entourage. How do I know that? Because I know the history of the man Herod the Great who's being approached here. I know that, and I'm, I'm about to demonstrate for you historically, how that Herod the Great was absolute paranoid tyrant. And if anybody would have come to his town to say, where is he who's born the king of the Jews when I'm the king of the Jews? You know, this is a threat to him. But this isn't going to be a threat to him if just three men walk up. It would be a threat if three men and a huge entourage uh, demonstrating their wealth and affluence from the east comes to town. Now he's got a problem. And he actually did have a problem because he sent soldiers six miles south to Bethlehem to kill all the male babies. Remember? Jewish male babies from two years old and under. Okay, that's the Christmas story. Where is he who's been born? I'm sorry. Uh, uh, they come to Jerusalem, Bethlehem. I'm sorry. In the days of Herod the king, Herod the king. Now, what about this Herod the king? What about him? He's called in history Herod the Great. He was a master architect and a paranoid tyrant. If I get these slides right, come on. Well, anyway, 
His background, he was born in 73 B.C. In 40 B.C., he's named King of Judah, Galilee, and Perea by the Roman Senate. Herod takes control of Jerusalem in 37 A.C. Uh, uh, B.C. Uh, he begins work on the temple in 23 B.C. Why do I mention that? That's a really cool historical note. Actually, listen to this. In John's Gospel... Um, I think it's chapter 2 or chapter 4. Jesus is walking in the uh, temple complex one day and somebody says, uh, you know, something about these beautiful stones and Jesus said, uh, the temple walls, Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it, raise it up, right? And the Jews say to him, the old, the old school guys who've been around a few decades and maybe helped with the work, they said this temple has been 46 years in the building and you're going to rebuild it in three days? I don't think so. What were they referring to? They were giving us a historical marker that aligns with, as I'm saying here, real world history. Herod began refurbishing this temple in 23 B.C., and so if we start there, 23 up to year zero, and go however many years to 46, you get to where you could tell how old Jesus was when this event took place, what year it was, A.D., okay? So, uh, anyway, you have that type of thing going on. Herod, uh, incidentally, dies in 4 B.C., and so judging by the chronology of Matthew 2, where he sends soldiers down south to Bethlehem to kill all the male Jewish uh, babies from two years old and under because he has um, uh, um, figured out from the time that the Magi said they saw his star in the east, the baby could be as much as two years old now. He kills them all. But Herod dies in 4 B.C., so we know from that historical note that Jesus was actually born between 4 and 6 B.C., Let's just put it in the middle. We'll say he was born in 5 B.C. Okay? This is a historical uh, fact. It's a very strong inference anyway. You know, the Bible doesn't say he's born at 0 B.C. or 1 B.C. It, it just doesn't. So here's a historical note that helps us with understanding Scripture. Herod the man. What kind of man was this guy? Um, this thing is really... a. This, this thing's really giving me problems. Well, let's go on. All I said there uh, in those last couple slides that just flew by here is uh, Herod uh, was, uh, had a lot of political prowess. He was a smart guy. He was an architectural uh, and engineering genius. He was a political genius. He had ties with Julius Caesar. You know that guy you read in 10th grade in, uh, literature class. He had ties with Mark Antony, Octavian, and uh, Cleopatra of Egypt. Uh, he had ties with these guys. But let's talk about what the character of this man. He had ten wives simultaneously. He executes his enemies. Josephus writes so much about this guy. He's a paranoid tyrant who runs from Cleopatra. He divorces his wives. He imprisons his sons. He has two of his sons killed. Aristobulus was one of them. He didn't make 
his other three or four sons had the land divided to him. Archelaus, uh, Herod, Antipas, and Philip. We read about all these guys in the Gospels. Uh, but Aristobulus was one that didn't make it long enough to get an inheritance. He was killed by his father. His, wife, his favorite wife, Miriam, was uh, killed. He had her executed. He dies in 4 B.C. in Jericho. What about his architectural feats? Well, what's the big deal about this amphitheater that sits in uh, Caesarea today on the west coast of Israel on the Mediterranean shore? What's the cool? Now, the scaffolding and the black seats were because when I visited here and took this picture this day, they were having an, an American rock concert. So the chairs aren't Herodian, but the steps are Her- Herod's. What's my point? This guy engineered these things 2,000 years ago and they're still standing. We build skyscrapers in New York now that don't last 80 years. They'll tear them down and something else comes along. Or they'll shake from an earthquake or fall down or whatever. You, you know. So you see my point. His, he, he was a genius. Uh, and um, Caesarea, this city he rebuilt was actually mentioned in the New Testament. Philip, the evangelists lived there. Paul's court trial before Felix and Festus was there. Uh, Peter is sent down there by the Holy Spirit in Acts 10. Masada, he built this hilltop fortress out in the uh, Judean desert beside the uh, Dead Sea. And uh, it was, uh, uh, what was the feat, the engineering feat here? Well, first of all, you have these um, um, cisterns he built to hold grain or water. You see how large this one is. There's a man standing down here, uh, and that shows you how long, uh, large that is. He could hide out there for months on top of this fortress. He, he, uh, these are the remains of, uh, I actually took the picture off of uh, the engineering feat he accomplished on the north face of this mount, uh, sheer rock cliff was he built a three-tiered hanging palace. And these are some of the remains that still stick into the side of those, that mountain cliff 2,000 years later. Think you can make something like that to stick? I doubt it. And then the rebuilding of the temple. This is just an artist's drawing of uh, the temple. Uh, let me give you a note, a biblical note here now. John 10. Well, uh, all through the Gospels you hear about Jesus and the disciples are going down to Jer- Jerusalem and they're in the temple for whatever. Well, when it says they're in the temple, they're never in the temple proper, the actual building, because only the high priest or the priest and the high priest could go in the temple here. But when it says there in, this is why I like uh, one of these newfangled Bible versions, the Holman Christian Standard, it actually translates it every time the temple complex, which is accurate. That's this courtyard. Jesus is out here. One specific example is you see the colonnaded uh, porch, the covered porch around the walls. Solomon had built those. Herod refurbished them. In John 10, 22, it says it was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in Solomon's porch or the portico of Solomon in the King James, I think. Okay, that's where he was walking there. This is all Herod's doing. So I'd like to make a simple assertion then that Herod and his sons are the backdrop to every page of the Gospels and Acts. Every page. Every page are influenced by Herod the Great and his sons. Um, His sons, uh, Antipater, uh, 
one of his sons by Doris, died in 4 B.C. Aristobulus, 7 B.C. Alexander, I think these are the two that were uh, killed, along with their mother, Mariam. Um, Herod Antipas uh, makes it for a while. His uh, grandson, Agrippa I, is found in the early part of Acts. And then Agrippa II is found in the latter part of Acts. And uh, Herod Philip the Tetrarch, the Gospels call him, uh, is here, son of a, a Cleopatra. And then Herod Philip I, the first husband of Herodias, uh, and uh, also Salome, are also mentioned in the Gospels. Herod Antipas, what about this guy? Matthew 14. Well, actually... Um, Yeah, okay. Herod Antipas. Uh, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus. Herod the Tetrarch. This is Herod Antipas. Now, this isn't an actual drawing, or this isn't really him from 2,000 years ago. I hope you understand that. They didn't have electric lights unless that sunlight. What, what, uh, what um, takeaway can I take here? Well, I want to help you with your Bible study, oddly enough. Because before I studied Herod the Great in seminary, and I did some research on him um, for uh, Dr. Madden, the librarian at Southeastern, um, I, and, and before study Bibles came along, I got confused about the Herods in the Gospel. I was like, is this a father-son deal? What's going on? Because a lot of times you might read when it just says Herod, as in Matthew 14, you might be thinking, Herod the Great from the God, uh, Christmas story. He's got to be an old guy by now. No, he died long ago. These are his sons. After Listen, here's my point. After Matthew 2, when you read the name Herod in your Gospels, it is one of his sons. Okay? So I hope that helps you out with sifting through all the names and so forth in, in your uh, Gospel. Herod the Tetrarch, what does that word mean? Well, the gospel writers used a word that meant something. Tetrarch, uh, you, you notice the, uh, uh, the root word there, the prefix T-E-T-R. This means over a fourth of the nation. Because the land was divided over four of his sons. So Herod, this Herod is Antipas, he is a Tetrarch. Well... Uh, we'll get that going. But then, if you're still in Matthew, if you happen to have turned there, let's look at another Herod now. Okay, uh, down in 19, 20, 21. Joseph and Mary were warned by God in a dream to flee south to Egypt, right? Because Herod was coming down to kill uh, the babies, right? And so... Okay, and so... Um, they go down to Egypt for, we don't know how long Jesus lived in Egypt. Six months, two years, we don't know. But look what happens. Verse 20, Matthew 2.20. Get up and take, take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel. Go back up to the country of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus... Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod. He was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. 
So there's to put some more of the uh, pieces of the puzzle together for you. This is Herod Archelaus. He is a son of Herod the Great. So there's a second Herod we read about in, uh, in the Gospels. I'll go ahead and scoot through them if this thing will um, try to get to where I was. And if we can't get there, it's not a huge deal. So we have uh, Herod uh, Antipas, the Tetrarch. We have Herod Archelaus. Okay, almost there. There we go. And then we have Herod Philip. He's mentioned where? Luke 3. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate, uh, there's good old Luke, our historian, giving us yet another historical connection. And as I said, the point of this uh, lesson is to show you how the New Testament Bible aligns with real world history. So that when your college professors or uh, uh, people around the water cooler at work or wherever you're out at work say, man, don't you know the Bible's been proven wrong? No, 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 no. The Bible actually lines up with history. Let's uh, let's think about a couple of things. So I'm going to give you a couple or more things here. And uh, so Philip is also called a tetrarch here. Why? Well, I thought Archelaus was a tetrarch. Well, I've already explained to you. It takes four of them to get off one quarter of the pie, okay? So yeah, they're all they're tetrarchs. That's why the text calls them that. So Philip is mentioned here. And in Luke 3, 19. Then Agrippa. Agrippa I now is uh, one of the grandsons of Herod the Great. He's mentioned in Acts 12. But we know when he died, so he didn't make it. Uh, I don't think he's one that made it to the end of Acts. Um, Agrippa II is at the end of Acts. Uh, King Agrippa and uh, Bernice. Now, I have a friend uh, He had, uh, back home up in Nash County. His wife is named this, but she does not want you to call her Bernice. It's Bernice. But I'm like, no, that's Bernice. Uh, they arrived at Caesarea, uh, Caesarea and paid their respects to Festus, and they take over the court trial. The Apostle Paul is uh, on trial before Agrippa II, the great-grandson of Herod the Great. Did I tell you every page of the Gospels and Acts are, are influenced by Herod and his sons? Every page. Herod and his sons are the backdrop of every page of the Gospels and the Acts. That's why... When I uh, do New Testament intro at seminary, I spend one and almost two, uh, one and a half, three hour lectures just on Herod and the Herods because they are the backdrop of the Gospels. This is an artist's rendering of uh, Paul. You see the chains. He's on trial before uh, Agrippa II. Um, Antipas now. Now let me tell you about Antipas. You need to understand this. Antipas is, and in fact, um, Antipas is, I just give you a list of scripture references where they're all mentioned at least once. Antipas is the Herod that you primarily read about in uh, the Gospels. Um, When Jesus said, you go tell that old fox, that's Herod Antipas. Not Herod the Great, his daddy, Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the one that had um, John the Baptist beheaded. This is he, Herod Antipas, okay? 
So now you know. Look at their dates for just a quick second. I really need to fly on through some of this material. Herod the Great dies in 4 B.C. Archelaus in 6 A.D. Oh, by the way, I said he, uh, we're saying here he died in 6. But we notice from Matthew 2.22 that he was reigning when Jesus and the family came back to Israel. So we know Jesus came back before his 10th birthday. Right, I said he was born in 4 B.C. I'm sorry, 5 B.C. And they moved back up at least before 6 B.C. So we know he was a young lad when he moved back. Agrippa I died in 44. That's how I know that he is not the Herod Agrippa in Acts 25 because that's roughly around, uh, that's in the 50s if not 60 A.D. when Paul's on trial. So that's Agrippa II. Okay? All right, um, let me move on. Judaism, uh, other historical notes. Um, in the intertestamental period, you have the development of the synagogue. The Jews were dispersed across the land uh, because of their sin. They had just been dispersed. They had been taken east into captivity. They're like, well, we can't worship God in the temple where we've been told to worship God alone at in the temple. So they, uh, the synagogue arose. It was a place where if at least ten Jewish men could meet together, then they would bring all the families, if there were at least ten uh, uh, heads of household, to, to read the Torah and pray. That, so the synagogue developed in the intertestamental period. Uh, the priesthood uh, was re-upped. The temple was being refurbished. The Sanhedrin, a group of ruling council, um, also came about. I'm really going to fly Emergence of sectarian groups, the Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, Essenes. Let me rush through these. I really want to get to some more uh, of uh, Paul and Acts. So let me just do that. I'm going to run out of time as usual. I was telling somebody the other day that uh, I'm going to cut through a lot of this, uh, the Jewish background. Let's look at the historical Jesus. I was telling uh, somebody uh, the other day that uh, when I first started preaching and teaching at seminary, uh, you know, eight years ago, when I first started preaching and teaching, I'd run out of time. I'm sorry, I'd run out of material. Now I run out of time because I've got too much material. It's just how it works, I guess. Did Jesus ever exist? Well, yeah, the Bible says so. Well, that's true and that's right. And the Bible is the truth. And so that's where we bank our eternal destiny on Scripture. Got it? But just for fun, I give us a few historical, extra-biblical historical notes too, because I like history. Roman sources. Uh, Suetonius wrote in the first century, He, Claudius, that's a Roman emperor in the latter first century, banished from Rome all the Jews who were continually making disturbances at the instigation of one Crestus. Crestus with an E is a variant spelling of Christus with an I, which is the Latin word for Christ. And the pro- what's the problem here? What's the problem? Christians had come to Rome where Jews had been dispersed and set up shop and opened their jewelry stores and bagel shops and thing were, things were all hunky-dory for them. But here come these Jewish believers in Jesus. And when they start sharing the gospel around town, it just stirs the pot. The Jews know that Rome doesn't like for the pot to be stirred. Okay? And so there's this, the Jews are really 
not liking the Christians coming to town, you know, uh, stirring things up. And uh, so these disturbances happen. So um, Claudius just says, all of you Jews are out of here, you know, without distinguishing between this sect uh, that belongs to this Jesus of Nazareth and the mainstream Jews. He doesn't care. All of you are causing a ruckus. Get out of town. Uh, Tacitus, uh, this is a really neat uh, note. Uh, But of all human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor and the propitiations of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration was the result of an order. Uh, Nero had Rome burned and blamed it on Christians. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius. There's another historical note to align with Scripture. Um, uh, And Pontius Pilate, one of our procurators, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment again, broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. Let me get to this next one, and I'll move on, I think. Pliny, or some people say Pliny, Pliny the Younger. They affirmed, however, that the whole of their guilt or their error was that they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light. What day was that? That Christians met. Sunday morning. They actually met before light, Pastor Jeremy. You might consider moving your time back to 6 a.m. for church. Yeah. And they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God. Imagine that. They're worshiping Christ as God. Yeah, there's something biblical about that. And bound themselves by a solemn oath not to perform any wicked deed, never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to make good, after which it was their custom to separate, then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and kind. Here's the deal. Why did he say all this? Pliny the Younger, he's a really cool kid. As a kid, he got to stand there with Pliny the Elder uh, uh, when Mount Vesuvius erupted and watched the city of Pompeii being covered uh, with the lava. Uh, Pliny the Younger witnessed that. Uh, I just thought that would be a cool thing to see, not to see a city destroyed, but just see how nature shows up big. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Anyway, he had been sent out to investigate this cult, as they were thought by the Romans, called Christians. And so he did. He snuck in the back of a worship service, and he says, here's what they do. And by the way, that last line, they accused Christians oftentimes of cannibalism, just to be ugly and mean to them. Yeah, I've heard y'all saying about your leader said, this is my blood, this is my body, eat of it, right? Jesus said that. And so he goes and investigates, and he says, yeah, they partake of food, but it's food of an ordinary and innocent kind. I didn't see him eating anybody. You know, it wasn't, he knew what kind of food they were serving. It wasn't like the Chinese restaurant where the meat was unidentifiable. He knew what they were eating. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Okay, Marabar Serapion, uh, Josephus, let me move on through here. I've got a lot uh, to get done in a very few minutes. Greek sources as well. Uh, And then we can move to uh, archaeology. 
This is really cool. This uh, graffiti was found on the wall. It dates to the second or third century. I'm going to be conservative. It, it is second or third. Uh, it was scratched in the wall. It's called the Palatine. I'm sorry. It's called the Alexamenos graffiti. It was found in Palatine, Rome. And here's what it says: a pencil drawing, so that you can read the Greek better, since you can read it. Alexamenos worships his god, is what it says. The interesting thing about this. I simply show this to explain this. Why is there a man on a cross with a donkey head? Because as they investigated Christians, they realized they worshipped a Jew. Jesus of Nazareth was a Jew, right? Well, the Romans hated Jews, and their slang word for Jews was a donkey. So they drew a picture making fun of this young man who worships this God, and put a donkey head, put him on the cross, because they knew the, the message of Jesus on the cross, put a, drew a donkey head on him. Alexamenos worships his God. Well, Alexamenos, don't be ashamed, brother. Okay? It's just a, a historical, uh, I'm sorry, archaeological uh, affirmation of that Christianity uh, was in the empire at the time. Some other archaeological notes that, um, this one's pretty cool. The bones, the uh, bones of a crucified man were found in the ossuary not long ago. And in the inset, the black and white is the actual portrait of the bone as it would look uh, uh, with the, uh, the nail through the ankle bone. What's the point here? The point here is to show you that crucifixion, A, really happened, and that B, it was really uh, terrible uh, torture and a form of capital punishment. Jesus studies. This is Bart Ehrman. He teaches uh, religion at UNC Chapel Hill. If you sent your kids there lately and they took introduction to religion or New Testament course, they probably sat under Bart Ehrman and were fed the most rank skepticism you could ever imagine. He's, he's an apostate is what he was. He was raised in a fundamentalist church, knew the Bible, and uh, chose to defect. And let me find uh, let me find my notes on him really quick because I re- I really need to read something that I have not memorized. Not going to be able to find it right now. Maybe I can just remember. Okay, Mark's ne- here's what it says about this is in his introduction to New Testament textbook. I have a copy in my office. I've been looking at it just to see what does he really say. Mark's narrative may even intimate that at the end, Jesus himself was in doubt. When he finally succumbs to his destiny, he appears even yet more uncertain. Do you read your Gospels that way? Did Jesus seem uncertain about his impending death? You know, biting his nails so forth. No, in fact, he predicted it three or four times, guys. I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed and be raised from the dead. And in fact, in uh, Matthew 16, Jesus took, uh, Peter took him aside and said, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus corrected him. Right? Get thee behind me, Satan. You're not thinking God's thoughts. Jesus didn't appear uncertain about anything. Oh, this is awful too. 
We know that early Christians modified and invented stories about Jesus. If we did not think so, and this is where I just have it in the footnote, Ehrman goes on to say, if we did not think that Christians modified and invented stories, we would have to say that Jesus really did zap his playmates when he was a child, when they made him angry or made fun of him, or uh, breathe life into clay sparrows to make them fly. Now, you might ask, what's that all that about? I'll tell you. Ehrman is trying to, and he does this in the minds of all those students sitting in that class in Chapel Hill every semester of this intro course, or those that use the textbook. What he is trying to do is instill in them a skepticism about the canonical 27 books in the Protestant Bible because in the apocryphal Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas primarily, you find these stories. So what he's trying to do is level the playing field and say, yes, these stories in Thomas were made up, but so were the ones in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're all the same. That's, that's the insidious, subtle uh, thing he's trying to do here. He's trying to equate the apocryphal Gospels with the canonical Gospels, the one we have in our Bible. But listen, I'm sorry, Bart, but the apocryphal Gospels did not make the cut in the first three centuries of the Christian church. And with good reason. They had objective criteria as to which books got into the canon. Those apocryphal ones did not make the cut. So, you know, you need to stop it. Well, I have some other quotes from his textbook, but uh, again, I, I, knew from, I knew I had too much material here, uh, but I just wanted to show you guys what's available out there uh, friends, uh, I wish I had asked for audio at first. Who's this? Larry King, and he always interviews really crazy people. Tiago, no worries about it. I, yeah, I appreciate it. I won't take the time, really. It's a time issue. He's got Bill Maher sitting at his desk. Y'all know this guy? Foul mouth, anti-Christian idiot. He goes, in this clip... In this clip, Larry King says, well, Bill, what about the prophet, the prophet Muhammad? Okay. And Bill takes this point. He's asked about Muhammad, but he takes the time to really slam Christianity again. And uh, he says, "Ah," this is exactly what he says and how he says it. "Ah, I don't know if he even existed. I don't think Jesus even existed. The more I read about Jesus, the less I think he even existed. Well, Bill needs to sit in on my New Testament history course if he's so-called read about Jesus and thinks he didn't exist. This is... Well, anyway, you see the point. Now, the Acts and Paul. Let me switch gears uh, because I'm going to run out of time. Um, The Acts of Paul. The book of Acts was written by a historian named Luke. Yes, Luke was a medical physician. He's called that. And if I were the Apostle Paul and I was going on uh, trips uh, overseas, international trips where I was going to be beaten and stoned and uh, beaten half to death, literally, I would like to have a medical doctor to take with me too on my trips. You see, he took Luke with him on his trips, right? But Luke was also 
uh, did very good at research. He says in the prologue of Luke, uh, his first four verses, uh, that he had sat down to go interrogate and ask questions. And so we know from Luke and also in Acts, he was actually eyewitness of a lot of those things, that he wrote down in careful detail. Remember, the point of this talk is that my New Testament, my Bible, lines up with what really happened in history. So that I'm confident, I'm more confident when I go and talk about the gospel with people at work. And they start bringing up things about, don't you know the Bible's been proven to be not true? You say to them, give me a few evidences. And they might say one or two things. And then you'll say, this is Greg Coco, a famous Christian apologist. This is his method. You ask them to give evidences of why they're saying that. And your second, uh, your second tool is to simply say this. Have you ever considered... Everybody say that with me out loud. Have you ever considered... Okay? And then you can start giving them some of these historical notations that I've given you. The Jewish background of the Gospels, the Herods, uh, the truth of Jesus, the extra-biblical evidence of Jesus, the things that Luke wrote in Acts. Okay? Have you ever considered? Can y'all do that at work when they ask you? You can. Try it this week. In fact, make a conversation happen about Christ in the Bible. Make it happen. You know, really easy entry way for this week would be, you've been watching the stuff about the Pope? Okay? And they'll say, yeah, I'm sick of that. You say, well, what about Jesus in general? What do you think about Him? Y'all can do this. Get something going, okay? All right. Um, what did I want to say here? Primarily, I want to get to, okay, Paul took a lot, a lot of missionary journeys across the Mediterranean Sea to the Greek Isles, to Rome, uh, to wherever. He wrote the epistles. Um, in, uh, some of them were written in jail. Um, Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon. And uh, Luke writes Acts from Rome, presumably as he had been Paul's travel companion, accompanies him later when he met it. And then we come to this... Um, you come to this scripture in uh, Acts 18. Did that bell mean I need to stop? Okay. All right. This is one of the most... What did you say? Oh, okay. And when he... And when he... Uh, when he left Athens and went to Corinth. And so we have this issue of Paul going to Corinth. Okay? The city of Corinth. What I want to talk about with Corinth. As soon as I find my place, I'll let you know. And down in verse 12, But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. Now, two things. Paul has gone to the city of Corinth, and he's brought on trial before the judgment seat. I actually had a picture. I don't know why in the world. I, don't, I, I think I took it out. There's Of the archaeological ruins in Corinth, there still is the stone uh, stage or platform that was built 2,000 years ago. It's still sitting there, the ruins of it. This was called the judgment seat, where the proconsul sat to hear the magistrate, uh, to hear uh, cases or whatever. Did y'all hear what city he was in? Corinth. 
There's a famous judgment platform for Gallio, the proconsul, to hear cases. He's in Corinth. Paul's first letter to the Christians at Corinth was 1 Corinthians. Paul, being a master teacher and desperately wanting to communicate the gospel to these people, he tries to establish common ground first. So in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 or 19 along in there, he says, We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And he's writing in Greek. He used this Greek word, the bimatos. We're going to stand before the bimatos to Christu. Where they're thinking, oh, the bimatos downtown. Yeah. See what I'm saying? They're making, he's establishing a connection with them and explaining, uh, you know, using real world history. Okay, the Bible, and my point there is this, the Bible is unlike any other religious book out there. The Hindu Vedas, the Muslim Quran, uh, the Buddhist Bhagavad Gita, those things do not are not connected with real time and real history. They're not, but the Bible is. The Bible is. Acts 18.12, Acts 18.12, Gallio, it's proconsul. The point of reference here for the dating of Paul's journey, journeys and the writing of his de- epistles depend on the correlation of events mentioned in Acts and Paul with externally verifiable dates. Here we have a major, I'm talking big time, major external verifiable reference to history. It is this stone with Gallio, the proconsul's name, etched on it, uh, that was found in Corinth. The most important external factor is the Gallio inscription, which mentions Gallio's being proconsul from July 51 to July of 52. Uh, this is around um, AD 51 and 52. This is a secure date in the middle of Paul's career, and therefore dates can be traced backward and forward from this point. Another external factor is that working backward to the famine relief visit of, uh, of uh, the book of Acts, the date would be between 45 and 47 A.D. Josephus mentions a famine in 45 or 46 A.D. Additionally, Aretas is another name mentioned by Paul by which an objective time res- reference can be ascertained. Further, at the other end of Paul's journeys are the mentions of Felix as governor of Judea in the 50s. Paul's arrest under the reign of Nero puts the dates for execution of Paul in 64 or 65. Claudius writes to the people of Delphi and mentions Gallio's proconsul at this time. This is what this stone is. It is in a writing from Claudius the emperor to the people of Delphi that mentions Gallio. And this is the actual wording on the stone. The things in brackets are what is left out, but they know from other uh, evidence what it actually uh, said. So I should probably... um, Oh, another really uh, really cool historical note here. Now, I know this will sound technical, but just listen to me. I'll try to explain it. That Luke distinguishes correctly between the senatorial and imperial provinces, uh, uh, right? He said the province of Achaia or something like that, and has the former governed by a proconsul on behalf of the senate and the latter governed by a proprietor, the Greek word he used, representing the emperor, says much for his accuracy, for the status of provinces changed with the times. Achaia, which he mentions, Luke mentions in Acts 18, 
was a senatorial province from 27 B.C. to A.D. 15. And then again, and then it went for a couple decades and it wasn't a senatorial province. But then again from A.D. 41 onwards, it was therefore governed by a proconsul. Okay? In other words, his point there is Luke had was there, obviously. He knew who was ruling at that time. He knew what kind of city it was at that time. Okay, so again, one more time, the Bible lines up with real history, guys. So, how can I use all this technical stuff? Mel, as I said, I'll do this again. When you are talking to friends and you want them to know the gospel and believe Deeply, you want them to believe what you believe about the Bible. And the conversation comes up and they cast aspersions on the Bible and try to denigrate it and talk it down. You know, you can say, have you considered that the Bible actually lines up with a whole host of historical notations? Let me give you one or two. You will not have to give but one or two before they'll get bored and say, okay, 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 you're going to watch the Cowboys tonight, you know. Something like that. And um, man, I hope Whedon can get the job done. Uh, anyway, um, guys, friends, listen to me carefully. And I'll let you go. I'll be done. Please take this stuff and use it. Use it to defend the faith and on the offensive. Have you ever considered? And give them one or two historical notes to get them thinking, to open their heart. Maybe that will crack a door in their life that God the Holy Spirit can begin to cause them to think when they lay their head on the pillow at night. Man, so-and-so told me at work about stuff about the Bible. Man, they'll just start thinking, Bible, Bible, God, Jesus. God can use you in that way. All right, Lord bless you. I'm done. Y'all have any questions? I'm not done with my notes, but I'm going to be done. Any questions? You can take that out, Tiago. Thank you. No questions? Comments? All right.